Please turn with me in your Bibles to Deuteronomy chapter 7. Deuteronomy chapter 7 is where we're spending time this morning as we continue this series that we've been in for some time. Deuteronomy 7 is one of the more difficult and challenging passages in the whole Bible. The first few verses of it for sure. So the sermon's entitled Straight Talk because we don't want to uh, skip over it. We don't want to ignore it. We don't want to um, pretend like it's not hard. So uh, at the same time, it has some really important truths for us that do apply to us in the modern world that we want to see as we look at it. Deuteronomy chapter 7 verses 1 through 8. Uh, many of you, most of you I'm sure are familiar with the organization Alcoholics Anonymous uh, some of you in this room maybe have been a part of that or have family members who've been a part of Alcoholics Anonymous. It was started in the 1930s to help people overcome addiction to alcohol. It's spread out over uh, a number of disciplines now to include different types of addictions that people face. There is uh, a number of important things about this uh, organization and what it does. Uh, and one of the things that's most interesting and somewhat controversial about the work of AA is that it asks all of its members to identify as alcoholics, whether or not they've had a drink in uh, years. That causes some consternation for some people who think that, well, you know, if you haven't had a drink in 20 years, how can you be still called an alcoholic? And what AA says about that is that it understands, and the reason they do this, the power of addiction. And that addiction, the sin that makes us prone to addiction, is extraordinarily powerful in the lives of those who have fallen victim to it in the past. And therefore, they can never, over the course of this life, ever reach a point where they say that they will no longer be tempted by that powerful force that once controlled their lives. And so they walk into their meetings, and as they introduce themselves to one another, they identify uh, with that phrase, my name's Chris, I'm an alcoholic. And they tell their stories of accountability. Now, the reason this is controversial is that some people think that uh, as Christians, for sure, your identity cannot be found in your sin. And that's true, our identity must be found in Christ and in Christ alone. However, there is a difference between our identity and our experiences. And we all struggle still against the power of sin experientially. This is actually very consistent with our confession of faith, our Westminster Confession of Faith, chapter 6. And paragraph 5 says, this corruption of nature that we all have during this life doth remain in those that are regenerated. And although it be through Christ pardoned and mortified, yet both itself and all the motions thereof are truly and properly called sin. So what the confession is identifying, what Alcoholics Anonymous is identifying, is that our sinful human nature makes us perpetually prone to sin temptation, and corruption. Uh, some temptations come from the outside. For an alcoholic, that would be someone walking up to them and saying, do you want to drink? 
Some temptations arise from inside of us, which would be more like, I really need a drink to feel better. Those are different kinds of temptation. What I want us to see this morning, in setting up this passage this way, is that the Lord, our God, knows our propensity to wander. And since He loves us, He desires that we avoid the pain of falling victim to the enticements of sin. Now the context for Deuteronomy 7 that we're going to look at this morning is that Israel is on its way to the promised land. They've left Egypt. God has freed them from slavery to Pharaoh in Egypt, and He has given them a good land flowing with milk and honey that they are to move into. The problem is there are other people in the land, and those people are not like them. They are the Canaanites. They worship other gods. They value other things, and the problem is that if Israel enters the land and doesn't do anything about those who are there, then they will likely fall victim to the power of sin. In essence, what the dilemma is, is whether they're going to trust the Lord or blend in. And that's a dilemma we all face in this life. Will we trust the Lord or will we blend in? So I want to look at this passage today kind of around a a few questions, but the big guiding question of this passage is what should be done when we're faced with the dilemma of either trusting the Lord or blending in? And so would you listen as I read from Deuteronomy chapter 7, verses 1 through 5 to begin this morning. This is God's holy and inerrant word. And it says this, When the Lord your God brings you into the land that you are entering to take possession of it and clears away many nations before you, the Hittites, the Girgashites, the Amorites, the Canaanites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites, seven nations more numerous and mightier than you. And when the Lord your God gives them over to you and you defeat them, then you must devote them to complete destruction. You shall make no covenant with them and show no mercy to them. You shall not intermarry with them, giving your daughters to their sons or taking their daughters for your sons. For they would turn away your sons from following me to serve other gods. Then the anger of the Lord would be kindled against you and he would destroy you quickly. But thus shall you deal with them. You shall break down their altars and dash in pieces their pillars and chop down their asherim and burn their carved images with fire. This ends the reading of God's word. Let's pray. Father, give us hearts to understand, ears to hear, hands and feet and voices to respond uh, to that which you call us to as we consider this important passage in your word. Like many, it is difficult, but it is important. We pray, Lord, that we would see those things today and see your grace in the midst of it. We pray in Jesus' name, amen. First question 
for us to look at is how the Bible works out uh, the calling that we have been given to trust the Lord in the ancient context of the Jews entering the Holy Land. And there's a number of things that we see in these first five verses of this passage. The first thing we see is that God gives the victory. Verse 1, it says, When the Lord God brings you into the land that you're entering to take possession of it and clears away many nations before you, names the nations, when the Lord your God gives them over to you. And so the the first thing to see for the Israelites is that they were going to achieve the victory themselves. The victory had to be achieved by the Lord their God. And He would, He promised them, from early in their history as a nation, give them this land of promise. But the second thing that's said at the beginning of verse 2 is that when the Lord your God gives them over to you and you defeat them, you must then devote them to complete destruction. In other words, you may not, as my people, absorb the spoils of war, take them for your own use, use them as if they were yours. You may not take anything from them, and you must kill them and all of their animals and people and knock down all of their religious sites. It must be completely cleared, which is referred to uh, theologically as the harim mandate, the mandate for total destruction. Now, I want to be clear about what this policy was. First of all, this was not the policy for Israel in every war they fought. But it was the policy for this war. It was a narrow policy for this particular war. S.R. Driver is a a biblical Old Testament scholar, and he says this of the Harim Mandate, it was a mode of secluding and rendering harmless anything imperiling the religious life of the nation. Another scholar, J.P. Lilly, the essence of the idea is an irrevocable renunciation of any interest in the object devoted, and consequently, so far as persons are concerned, the options of enslavement and treaties are not available. It was a hard word from God. You must completely destroy the inhabitants of this land. There was, interestingly, an out. A very narrow out, and it's seen in two stories in the book of Joshua that you might be familiar with. The narrow out was proactive repentance on the part of the people. And we see that first in Rahab, who was a prostitute in the land, who proactively repented and came to the aid of the people of Israel and was spared. We also see it in the story of the Gibeonites, which is slightly more complicated, but in Joshua 9, the Gibeonites make a treaty with Israel and are spared, that Israel honors. So there are narrow clauses for people to be spared, but it would require them renouncing everything about their pagan religions and the way that they lived. Now, the reason that God says that they're called to destruction is that He cannot allow His people to enter into a covenant with these other people who have other gods and who worship in other ways. If they do that, 
then their covenant with their God would be violated. You can't have a simultaneous covenant to two gods. You have to remain faithful to one or the other. For that reason, there would be no treaties, no mercy, and no intermarriage. And God says this to them because these intermarriages would corrupt them. They would become more important to them than the things of God. They would begin gradually over time to worship the gods of the people that they would marry. And that corruption would result in a rift between them and God, which would then result in grave pain and grave sorrow in their lives. It would return them to exactly the place that they had come from, slavery in Egypt. And so he says to them, in verse 5, thus you shall deal with them. You shall break down their altars and dash in pieces their pillars and chop down their ashram and burn their carved images with fire. It was a call to complete destruction. Now, if you know anything about the history of Israel, they started okay, but they quickly fell apart and they ceased honoring this covenant promise that God required of them. The result of which was, indeed, as he had told them, they fell apart. They became idolaters. And eventually, in time, they were deported into other kingdoms. The northern kingdom dissolved. The southern kingdom, taken to Babylon, remained in only a remnant from which would come, ultimately, the Redeemer. But the nation of Israel was destroyed because they were unfaithful to what God called them to do. That's the story of Deuteronomy chapter 7. Why though, and this is the second question, is this way of dealing with sin and temptation so off-putting to modern minds? Uh, if you tell this story, if people read this story, maybe some of your friends that aren't believers or family members may have brought this up to you at some point and said something like this, I cannot worship a God who requires the absolute destruction of a nation. And I will not. Some uh, atheistic scholars like Richard Dawkins have written about this extensively in their works. Richard Dawkins is one of the four horsemen of the atheist apocalypse, and he writes in his book, this is his quote, he casts the Old Testament God as, quote, arguably the most unpleasant character in all fiction. He calls the Bible fiction. A vindictive, bloodthirsty, ethnic cleanser, a misogynistic, homophobic, racist, infanticidal, genocidal, filicidal, pestilential, megalomaniacal, sadomasochistic, capriciously malevolent bully. I don't know how long it took him to come up with all those adjectives. <laughs> but as you can see, he has no um, interest in worshiping and bowing before the God that he reads about in a passage like Deuteronomy chapter 7, neither do many people. For many people, though this description that he gives of God is wildly unbalanced, 
and lacking in a full sense of what the Bible's witness about him is. Nevertheless, this story does present a significant obstacle to faith for many people. In fact, it may be amongst the greatest of obstacles of faith. How can I worship a God that would call for the destruction of a whole people? As a result of this, when Christians encounter those kind of comments, some Christians try to explain away the offense of this passage. And they do it in two different ways. One way is they seek to reinterpret or lessen the violence that seems to be commanded. They say, well, oh, this word doesn't mean that, or he wasn't really asking them to do that, or uh, this word could be interpreted in a different way that didn't require them to kill anyone. But you know, the, the problem is, if you pay close attention to the Bible and its words and their ancient meanings, the, the passage just doesn't give us the permission to do that. Because there's many other passages where God sends his people to war, but doesn't call them to do this. And this one he does. So you're playing fast and loose with the text of Scripture if you start to try to explain away the difficulty of this passage. And if you're going to do that, you're going to have problems elsewhere. The second thing, and maybe more popular, is that some Christians decide to pit the God of the Old Testament against the God of the New Testament. And they decide in favor of the God of the New Testament and his son Jesus. And the idea in this way of thinking is that, well, Yahweh, the God of the Old Testament, was indeed a violent and capricious God. But Jesus is a loving and gentle God. And what the Bible really points us to isn't the Old Testament. You might as well take your Bible and find the middle and rip it in half and throw out the Old Testament and keep the New Testament because that's where we really encounter God. Uh, of course, that's very um, interesting and would make it a lot easier in some ways to explain passages like this, but you can't do that because Jesus is the product of the Old Testament. He's prophesied in the Old Testament. Messiah is the central feature of the promise to God's people in the Old Testament. Jesus preached the Old Testament. And so if you do that, you have artificially divided God. And you've left yourself with a greater dilemma than you had in the first place. Maybe a, a modern controversy uh, might help us to understand what people think about this and uh, in God's um, providence, hard providence. We're watching this unfold right now in Israel. In a sense though not in a specific religious sense, Israel, in their war with Hamas, has decided to effectively execute a policy like this. And you know about the violence that's happened, uh, the attacks on October 6th. Um, but people in the media, people in culture, have risen up against Israel and said, how could you possibly do that? That is too violent it's too revenge-oriented. It's too ugly. You're utterly wiping Gaza off the map. Israel knows their history. 
And there is something to what they're trying to do, but it's basically this. If we don't do this, these people have pledged to destroy us. And people are like, well, that's too overtly nationalistic. Let me, let me reduce it this way. I want you to imagine you get some new neighbors next door to you. They move in. They buy the house next door to you. And they tell you from the first day that they move in that what they're going to do is kill you and your children. That's what they tell you they're going to do. They're going to find the right moment and they will kill you and your children and they will take everything you have. How would you respond? Would you just settle for that? None of us in this room, I don't care what religion, what background you have, none of us in this room would tolerate that. We would do something about it. It may be relocating. Can't relocate a nation. What are you supposed to do? You defend yourself. So if we put it in that context, it may be a little bit easier to understand the dynamics in play in the modern context. And it may be a little bit easier to understand the dynamics in play in this Old Testament context. If Israel didn't do this, they would be surrounded by people that were going to destroy them from the inside out. What should they do? Trust God or blend in? Andrew Judd is a, a biblical commentator. He writes this, For me, reading the Old Testament through the lens of the cross reveals a God who is anti-violent rather than non-violent. It is not in his nature to destroy, but to redeem. He is not bloodthirsty like the Canaanite gods, but neither will he sit by passively while evil, evil takes over the world. God does not delight in the death of the wicked, nor is he above getting his hands dirty to win back his world. When he uses force, it is as a last resort in measured response to restrain wickedness. He destroys only ever with tears in his eyes and with a view to future salvation. Christians should do well, he says, to remember that most of us, as Gentiles, belong to the Canaanite side of the story. We are living proof of the grand scope and glorious mercy of God's rescue mission. question in light of this is then how do we apply this today? I don't think this is a prescription for holy war for us in the modern world unless we want to define holy war more spiritually because our greatest enemy today, our enemy, us, is not a nation state. Our greatest enemy are those that would actively drag us away from God and our own sin nature. That is our greatest pairing of enemies. And so we're faced with a dilemma, just like the Israelites. How will we manage the threats and temptations around us and inside of us? Will we trust God or will we blend in? Now the Bible in the New Testament gives us three dispositions that help us to apply some of the hard things we learn in Deuteronomy chapter 7. The first disposition it teaches us 
is the disposition that we should take toward our own sin. I'm not talking about your neighbor's sin. I'm not talking about that person across the aisle from you this morning. I'm not talking about that person out there in society that's a sinner. I'm talking about my sin and your sin. What is our disposition toward our own sin, which is the greatest enemy of all? In the New Testament, in Matthew chapter 5, Jesus talks about this. And here's what he says in Matthew 5, 29. If your right eye causes you to sin, tear it out and throw it away. It's better that you lose one of your members than that your whole body be thrown into hell. And if your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away. It's better that you lose one of your members than that your whole body go into hell. The point Jesus is making here isn't to literally cut off your hands. It's a metaphor. He's saying you must take drastic action against your own sin. And so whatever that besetting sin, that nagging sin, that thing that is pulling you away from God is, you cannot make peace with it. It would be like the Israelites going into the Canaan land and making peace with the Canaanite gods. It may seem nice on the day, but in the end, it will kill you. And so instead, he said we should be killing it. And that is the doctrine of mortification. It is the killing of our own sin. And that means identifying your sin. It means confessing your sin. It means seeking accountability around your sin. It means taking action in your life to remove as much of the temptation as you can. If your sin usually arises by looking at your smartphone and that leads you down a path towards something that is very bad in your life, then you need to do something about your smartphone. And I know many people who have taken that action. If looking at social media causes you to become jealous and filled with angst and self-doubting, uh, you, know, you need to eliminate looking at places like that on the, on the web. And the process goes on and on. Our first disposition toward our greatest enemy is we must kill it before it kills us. The second disposition the Bible gives us in the New Testament is our disposition toward immorality inside the church. And Paul speaks about this in 1 Corinthians chapter 5 and verse 9, and the disposition is accountability. He says, I wrote to you in my letter not to associate with sexually immoral people. Not at all, not at all meaning the sexually immoral of this world, or the greedy, and swindlers, or idolaters, since then you would need to go out of the world. But now I am writing to you not to associate with anyone who bears the name of a brother if he is guilty of sexual immorality, or greed, or is an idolater, reviler, drunkard, or swindler, not even to eat with such a one. For what have I to do with judging outsiders? Is it not those inside the church whom you are to judge? God judges those outside. What he was teaching the Corinthian church is you can't tolerate active, ongoing sin publicly, openly in the church. It will kill the community of faith. 
And so you need to do something about it. What should you do about it? Well, accountability. Loving, pastoral accountability, which you pray and hope resolves and brings the person to repentance and restoration. In cases where people refuse to have accountability, the ultimate step that the church is to take is the step described here of excommunication, that is taking that person and putting them outside the church in the last-ditch hopeful prayer that it will bring them to conviction of sin so that they can return. That's our second disposition. It's accountability. Our final disposition is our disposition toward immorality in society. And the, the, the scriptures here call us to warm witness. Warm witness. Matthew 5, Jesus says this, You are the salt of the earth. But if salt has lost its taste, how shall its saltiness be restored? It is no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled under people's feet. Salt was a preservative. It enabled people to enjoy their meat for longer. He says in verse 14, You are the light of the world. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden, nor do people light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a stand, and it gives light to all in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. Our disposition toward the world of ugliness and sin outside of us should be warm witness, love, good works, pointing them to the Savior who has redeemed us. Unfortunately, we flipped those last two. We get angry and judge the world who doesn't know Jesus, doesn't claim faith in Jesus, and we tolerate sin in our midst. And it's a recipe, like for Israel, for disaster. And so our challenge in applying this passage isn't so much the challenge of how to conduct a war against an enemy in a physical sense, but it is the challenge of conducting a war against the power of sin inside of us. And our calling is like that of the Israelites. We must do everything in our power to destroy it before it kills us. The question for us is, are we? How are we doing? It's hard. For some of us, those sins keep coming back. And we feel the power of those besetting sins that tangle us up and drop us to our knees sometimes way more often than any of us would admit. And they may be sexual sins, they may be addictions, they just may be greed or anger or idolatry or uncaring dispositions toward other people. But that's the power of sin. And if we tolerate it and stop fighting it, it kills us. Little by little, it kills us. And that's the message of application for us from Deuteronomy 7. Now there is one more important thing to see in this passage. 
And it's the last couple verses. Because what do we do if we fail in our struggle against sin? And the answer is that we have a gracious God. Would you look at verses 6 through 8 at the end of this passage? It's so beautiful. For you are a people holy to the Lord your God. The Lord your God has chosen you to be a people for His treasured possession out of all the peoples who are on the face of the earth. It was not because you were more in number than any other people that the Lord set His love on you and chose you, for you are the fewest of all peoples. But it is because the Lord loves you and is keeping the oath that He swore to your fathers that the Lord has brought you out with a mighty hand and redeemed you from the house of slavery and from the hand of Pharaoh, the king of Egypt. Did you see those things? Our God is a God of affectionate grace. There is a word used here to describe the special treasure, segula. It's a, a, a Hebrew term, and it's very rare in the Bible. But it's descriptive in just a few passages of the greatest treasure a king has. And that's the word that's used to describe you. You are shown the affectionate grace of God. You're also shown the electing grace of God, which is not based on anything we deserve. Israel wasn't the biggest or the best or the most prominent nation. They were nothing. And yet, God chose them. We're not good enough to be chosen by God. We're not smart enough. God chose us as an act of His unbending mercy. It is His electing grace and His saving grace. He brought you out of Egypt. He won the victory miraculously by saving you at the cross of Christ when sin was defeated and we were given hope. And ultimately, it says in this passage that he redeemed you from the house of slavery, from the hand of Pharaoh, the king of Egypt. Also, a rare word, pada, ransom. He paid a ransom. The ransom was Jesus. His perfect righteousness in exchange for the filthy rags of our sin. Affectionate grace, electing grace, saving grace, redeeming grace for sinners like me and you. If it does anything, brothers and sisters, it should humble us. It should humble us. Booker T. Washington was um, African-American man in the late part of the 19th century. He was born into slavery, but escaped slavery during the Civil War. He educated himself. He became a scholar. And the president of the Tuskegee Institute in Alabama, one of the first African-American colleges, he was eminently well-read. He sat with presidents. He had great gifts. One day, a story is told of Booker T. Washington walking through 
the community where uh, the Tuskegee Institute was on a stroll in the afternoon and a woman came out of her house and said, hey, can I pay you a couple dollars to chop some wood for me? Now, if I was Booker T. Washington, I would have said, Madam, I am a university president, though I may not look like it to you. What Booker T. Washington did that day was he took off his coat and he rolled up his sleeves and he said, why, madam, I would be delighted to. And for the next two hours, he chopped wood and he stacked it on her porch. And at the end of the day, he refused to take the money. And he went back to his desk and carried on in his role as president of the Tuskegee Institute. A day or two later, someone uh, who recognized him and heard about the thing went to the woman's house and told her who had done the work. And she was incredibly embarrassed and humbled that a man of such stature would bend his knee in such great humility and do it with such delight. You and I have been given the greatest gift in the world that it will ever know. If you're trusting in Christ, you are saved now and you will be saved in the end. But it's not because of anything we've done. It's because of everything that Jesus has done. And therefore, when we face the battle against sin, let's honor our Redeemer by killing our sin, by holding those we love accountable to his righteousness, and by being warm witnesses in this world that so desperately needs a redeemer. Would you pray with me? Father, we thank you for your word today. We thank you for the witness it is to us, even in a hard passage like this, where it seems not to make sense in the modern world, and yet, Lord, there is a message in it that you hate sin because you know what sin does to us. You know its power, you know its ability to corrupt, to lead us astray and to ruin our lives. And so you call us, Lord, to abandon it, to kill it, to move away from it and to set our eyes on you. Lord, we will struggle to do that in our lives, but grant us the grace to never quit in trying in the help and power of the Holy Spirit to keep our eyes on you and to rest in the great glory of your redeeming grace. Father, we thank you and praise you for your goodness. In Jesus' name, amen.